to another episode of Breaking into Cybersecurity. Today, we have Craig on, who will be sharing his story. But first, if you are joining us from LinkedIn, please ensure that you follow myself and Craig on LinkedIn. If you're joining us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button and that notification button. And if you're joining us on Twitter, follow myself and Craig. Craig, tell us a little bit about yourself and what made you interested in cybersecurity? That's kind of funny, actually. I grew up really involved in it. I was one of those kids blessed with the computer from the time that I can remember uh, back in the old 286 days. And, and I'm aging myself here, but did what a lot of kids do and, and got in trouble as a result in some ways. But the uh, I was always literate with computers. But it's interesting, you know, as I grew up, I was determined not to do what my parents did. And so when I left home and I joined the military, it was... I was not going to be that computer guy and and I wasn't for the longest time and kind of landed back in it on accident. So it's always been there a little bit as an interest uh, growing up. I've always been very literate in that sense, but as a career, it was more of a, an accident, to be honest. What's about this accident? How did that happen? So my, after, you know, when I joined the military, my background was actually human intelligence. So I was an interrogator. I ran source operations, did some identity intelligence stuff. And uh, after the military, I was a contractor. So I spent another, I don't know, five years in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the contracting world is really dirty. I think in a five-year period, I only interviewed maybe three times, maybe four, but I ended up working for like 10 different companies with all the different buyouts. And, you know, new company comes in, bids, underbids the contract and you, you move on, right? So I was actually on a contract here in Kansas, in the Kansas City area. And Northrop Grumman came in, underbid the contract, and offered us all that we could keep our jobs if we were willing to take a 50% pay cut. And uh, I had a friend, an associate, a, you know, a guy I'd worked with who was over at the Department of Agriculture, just standing up their new sock at that point, and said, hey, you want a job? So it was honestly, it was more of a, a rebound from the contracting world, given that undercutting style that the contracting world had. Let's talk about that. Standing up a sock in a, a federal agency, that must be a fun challenge. It was. We had no money at all. <laughs> so we ended up, so we had bodies, but we had no money. So we actually ended up building our entire sock at that point. It's, it's really matured since then. But back then we built it around uh, Bro, for those on the call that are familiar with Bro and now called Zeke. But really it was a uh, the, our, the, the heart and soul of that sock was bro being pushed into elk and Hadoop. And so we, it was a very manual operation, but thankfully being part of the government, we decrypted everything for the most part. If you can see it, you can fight it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the interesting challenges of being in cybersecurity is sometimes you get handed tasks and you need to figure out how to do it. Like standing up a sock with no resources. You know, we give the industry puts way too much emphasis on things like education, in my opinion, tenure, years of experience, certifications, things like that. When, when the reality in, in my experience is that being able to creativity and creatively think outside the box, you know, try new things, recognize if they're not working and try something different. Those are all going to be a far bigger indicator for success in these cyber programs. And really in the cyber, you know, I think personally on my teams, we really transitioned probably more to like an 80% intangibles viewpoint when it comes to talent, because it's moving so quickly. The landscape changes some month over month at, at times. I mean, I was just, I just started here at Avnet about six months ago now, and 
I was just looking the other day at how much legislation has come out and, and new regulations just in that last six months. Insane. So I think, you know, when it comes to breaking in, having the attitude to learn and try new things is going to be critical. And how do you go about measuring performance or measuring those intangibles to be able to recruit effectively? It's tough. It's really tough. I think when you talk to folks and you see the effort that they're putting in on doing things on their own, you know, I, I hired a guy once who had literally self-studied for his CISSP and passed, having had zero years of experience in cybersecurity. To me, I don't care all that much about the certification as much as I care that he put that much effort into a field he didn't have any familiarity with and was still able to pass the test. Right? To me, that's a, that, that shows drive, it shows passion, it shows somebody who's going to stick to something. There are those who have really good online communities who, who spend time on Twitter or LinkedIn and the different InfoSec communities whether even even if they're more junior, right? Building that community and, and sharing the information that they get that helps them out. That you know, you can really tell when you look at somebody whether they're doing it because they love it or they're just looking for the paycheck. And honestly, I see a lot of the paycheck looking right now because cybersecurity pays well. But you're not going to be good at it if you're not passionate about it. That's definitely one of those intangible skills that we talk about all the time, but it's, it's harder to demonstrate and to quantify. What are some of the ways that you look for that? For example, I, I, separate from the example of passing the CISSP without experience, what, and building communities, what, what other things do you look for? For me personally, I'm kind of atypical. Like I love a good a cover letter, for example. Right. And I think part of what we have to do as leaders, now that we've all broken in, I mean, obviously I got really lucky. And we don't want that to be the standard quo, right? We don't want people to get lucky to get it. We want them to be some sort of measured way to come in. But I really like cover letters where I can actually see somebody's personality and their drive. Not like your necessarily your cut and paste type cover letters, but the ones where they're like, hey, I did this research. This is why I like this company. Here's, you know, where they show maybe some indication of their skills for Googling. Because let's be honest, Googling is like one of the top skills out there right now. Nobody puts it on their resume. <laughs> But if you can do some OSINT, right, even if you don't know what that word means, but if you can go figure stuff out and do that research, that tells me you may be able to you know, draw that bigger picture we're looking for in the investigation space, right? Or if maybe if you are a really strong marketing person or you write really good copy, how can we use you to expand this the, the or to get rid of the old stereotype of cybersecurity being like this you know, problematic office to work with? So I think we have to be creative. Honestly, I look at every resume now. I know I don't let the ATS screen them anymore because you end up losing a lot of really good folks that way. One of the comments from our listeners, Ronald asks, which is a good cert to get first to get a foot in the door wise? And that's that's a tough one for me to answer because I honestly don't put a lot of credit into most certifications. The challenge is, is the bad apples have kind of ruined it for everybody. You, know, you can go online and with a quick Google search, find brain dumps for the CEH, SEC plus, net plus, all of those basic ones. You don't even have to know it to pass the test at this point. And so because of the amount of people that have abused that, it's really hard to put a lot of credibility into it. The things that I really like to see for people coming in is when they've done things like the try hack me type sites, right? Where they're going through and saying, I went and owned this many boxes because that tells me that somebody who's going at it and having a good time and you can't necessarily cheat on too many of those. There's good write-ups, but you still have to do some work. 
some of the other certifications that are a little bit more advanced, like CISSP, PMP, I respect because you can't really cheat on them. And the OSCP I like because it's an actual hands-on, even if it is really expensive. There's some also like the, the PN, what is it, the new PN, I forget the name of it now, but there's another new one that's come out on LinkedIn that I really like for the hands-on nature of it. But honestly, a lot of the SEC plus net plus stuff, it's not going to be a pro or a con necessarily in, in that. But you come from the intelligence space. What are some of the ways for individuals to get in if they like intelligence and they want to bring that into cybersecurity? I think it's probably one of the fastest growing areas right now. You know, it's an area that you need to make clear that that's your interest. But if you think about you know, what we're dealing with, with the different adversaries and everything, my, I, if somebody were to say, hey, what was the biggest thing that helped you in the cyber world? I would say it was my background in intelligence and understanding that context matters and understanding that you need to know the whole picture, that we can't just you know, run, run off and create a, like in the, in the Intel world, right? If you go and create a target package for somebody and you have bad data, you didn't do all your homework, you didn't ask the right questions, innocent lives could be. Now it's not necessarily that drastic in cyber, but those same lessons apply in wanting to, needing really to understand that full picture. So, and if you look at how Microsoft is building out their, their cloud security organization, if you look at a lot of these companies now, cyber threat intelligence is the cyber version of that, where it's okay, who are the bad guys? How do they act? What kind of things are we going to look for? What threat landscape is changing and, and how do we be proactively prepared for that? I mean, it's, it's time for us to stop being so reactive. It sounds like also need to be able to communicate effectively back to your marketing comment that in order to write that, that threat profile, that background on a threat actor or the risk profile that an organization might have, you have to be able to both be technical and be communicative. It's it's funny you mentioned that. I have literally interviewed people that their resume was otherwise unimpressive, but their copy and their, the way that they communicated their story was so good that I'd had to talk to them. So there's a really that, that's a really good point. I mean, how do you take a technical topic like cyber and in this day and age where we're working more on DevSecOps and, and really that more of a collaborative approach with the business, how do you communicate that cyber threat in a language that the business understands. How do you take the the technical part out of it, or at least enough out of it that it's not overwhelming? That's very interesting. How would someone be able to communicate their interest in in being able to do that for you to see outside of copy on their resume? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know, to be honest. I, I think that there is a little bit of bias built in, uh, you know, from somebody like myself who as a military background, I would lie if I said that that didn't matter for me when I view resumes because I, I recognize what people like that bring to the table based on my you know background of working and, and I have a more of a firsthand knowledge of those you know, how translatable those skills are. But at the same time, I think it's really important for people who are getting in to translate their current skill sets to the job that they're trying to get. Right? If you are dealing with customers all day and, and, and like a retail position, right? Then why not reword that to show how you can deal with you know, adversity, deal with constant complaints, deal with incidents where people are emotional. I mean, there, there's so many translatable skills there that are that need to be sold. And if you can sell it, the people who are really good on their resumes at selling what you would think of as an unrelated, but selling it in a way that it would be helpful 
to cyber, they're worth their weight in gold. I mean, you can tell right off the bat that here's somebody that can communicate a role that you wouldn't even think would be applicable, but make it but make it look applicable, right? Yeah. Some of the, the ways that I've recommended to folks is is to do like blogs or take a headline a day and write up three paragraphs on it. And if if they do that for a couple months, not only does it build up their portfolio, but it builds up their analysis skills and keeping up with the, the changing landscape. It's funny, you know, I use my mom sometimes. I'll go, she has no cyber, no IT. She's completely technologically illiterate for the most part, right? So if I can get her to understand a concept, I'm probably okay. Another question, do employers actually care where an applicant goes to school or do sites like Try Hack Me or Hack the Box matter more? I don't, I've heard of some employers that do really believe that the school matters. I think more and more we're seeing that it doesn't. I don't personally care where you go to school. To me, getting a degree is great. Uh, it shows that you completed something, that you stuck with something. But let's be honest, if you graduated yesterday with a four-year degree in cyber, you're, you're already behind the curve for, the, for what's going on right now, right? So from that perspective, the, the school aspect shows me you've been finished. But the other challenges, you know, Abhijit on the comments noted the PNPT, which was the other one I was talk, think, thinking of. But things like that, things like the hack the box stuff with Try Hack Me, those show that current, constant, like passion, that drive to go and learn, to go and, and be better. You know, some of these folks have had really impressive interviews where they have no experience, but they have a home lab that they have set up and can walk me through. In fact, I hired a guy in my last, in part because he had a home lab that was really well built. He could walk me through each part of it, what he was doing, how he was collecting the data. And so even though he didn't have really any real world experience or minimal real, real world experience, he had taken the time to hands-on build something of his own and understand it well enough to speak to it. What are your views on internships and apprenticeships? I think, uh, you know, we have two coming on board here at Avnet actually uh, next week. You know, I've written about some of the interns that we posted at H&R Block. H&R Block, when I was there, was they had one of the better intern programs I've ever seen. You know, we were able to not only leverage college kids, but, you know, if you go back on my LinkedIn, we done, we had a kid, Alex, who's already a graduate, who had had trouble with some interviews. He was on the spectrum. He kind of get in his own way. So we brought him in as an intern, basically a four-month working interview. And he's still there and kicking ass. I mean, he turned that into a full-time job and he's doing great things. So it gives you the ability to be flexible and to find to find new talent without a lot of risk, right? Some, let's be honest, a lot of managers have trouble with hard conversations. So when it comes to internships, if, uh, if somebody doesn't work out, the internship's over. But the, the goal is usually if it does work out and they're at the right stage of their schooling to convert them into a full-time role. And what about apprenticeships where the model is slightly different, where you're taking someone with zero skills, you're providing them with on-the-job learning, as well as that requirement where they need a certain amount of continuing education credits, say, for example, like in the electrical trade or in in the medical field. What about doing something like that? For I think there's a lot of uh, merit to it. You know, one, of, one of our biggest success stories at Block was a girl we brought in as an intern. We liked her so much, but she was still in, she still had multiple years of school left. So we couldn't bring her on full-time because she was still going to school. So it ended up being a part-time 
at each and block, still main, you know, still maintaining a full-time school schedule. And ultimately she thrived. So I think that, you know, being creative is the key, but I have not done an actual apprenticeship role, but I think that there's a really in cyber at least, but I think there's a, a good case to be made for it, especially with our current talent gap right now. And I'm sure coming out at a military, you, you might've heard of the skill bridge programs that allow our transitioning military vets to take advantage of those. Have you looked into those? Yeah. So actually we do have a, uh, you know, we have a partnership here at Avnet with Microsoft and Microsoft is one of the ones that supports and promotes some of those, those military transition activities. When I was at HR Block, we had a partnership. I forget the name of it now. I'll have to look it up. Then we had another organization. I think they were headquartered out of Colorado that would help with the veterans and, and placing in, in suitable roles and giving them, you know, the training ahead of time, or at least providing the resources for that training coming in. And, and obviously being prior service, like I said, you know, I would lie to say there is a little bit of a bias towards that sometimes knowing what, you know, what people, it gets, it's a little bit more of a known quantity, I guess, for those of us comfortable in that space. Yeah. Cyber up is one the examples of those programs, and we've been a big supporter of them. I think SmoothStack is another one that focuses on male spouse and female service members, giving them that extra shot as well. What are your views on remote ways to take on stakeholders, especially if they might be outside the U.S.? So my personal view on remote global is that as long as you're industry slash company can legally support it it's silly not to do it you know we when i was at block we had the you know, we were fortunate to really build the first totally integrated global team where we had people in the u.s reporting to international leaders and vice versa and you know there's a little bit of a learning curve but one of the cool things you find the remote part we can all handle right COVID taught us that COVID taught us that remote works just fine so if remote works just fine and you can leverage different cultures, the way different people think about different things, right? How they approach problem solving. Cause there's a lot of cultural elements to approaching, you know, how do you solve a problem? Is that more of a routine base? Is it more of like the West, like in America, where it's, a, it's more of like, we're all cowboys, right? It doesn't matter if I give you like the perfect recipe to build the most amazing cake, you're still going to change it because Americans do that, right? They want to make it their own. So how do you, so, so having a mix gives you that diversity of thought to really create a pretty powerful global culture. I think that, that truly will benefit the team. So I personally, I'm a huge proponent of it. The challenge being in some, in some verticals, you can't necessarily support it, right? Because of us law or European law, it's, it's where data, where, da, where data resides becomes problematic at times for some of those remote efforts. Thinking about how people think differently, what are some of the ways that we could potentially improve the way that cyber looks at neurodiverse individuals? Now, I think we're seeing a lot better uh, progress there. In fact, I would wager there's pretty much every cybersecurity team has people on the spectrum, whether they know or admit it or not. I think, I think, we, I think that the industry naturally attracts a lot of folks, right? Because being on the spectrum, we tend to like puzzles. We tend to be pretty good at solving puzzles and we tend to be able to focus on those things, on those, those types of challenges. I think the bigger challenge is how do you take folks who are on the spectrum and one, make sure that they have a suitable application and interview process that suits right the way that our brains work. And two, how do you help folks like me on the spectrum take less than the decade that it's taken me to work on my communication enough to assimilate and, you know, 
to be considered, I guess, more normal, if you will, in my communication style, right? It's, it's been a ton of work. It's super hard, but we can't, in my opinion, we can't treat neurodiversity as a, as a disability as much as it is a different way of approaching things, right? And if, it's just, and if it's just a different way of how you see the world of how you approach things, then helping to coach and iterate with those individuals on how they present themselves, on understanding how others perceive them, shouldn't be off, as off limits as I feel it is right now. And thinking about coaching individuals to get from the beginning to end, how do you do that with occupation titles? So someone that comes in as a junior and create that continuous path for them from coming in as a junior to rising in the ranks and providing them both with the challenge along the way so that they stay and being able to promote within. I think one of the biggest problems that we have in IT and cyber together is this assumption that just because you're technically proficient, you'll, you will be good as a leader, right? We forget that leadership is a completely different skill set, and that a lot of folks, especially a lot of folks on the spectrum have no real desire to be leaders, right? They want to be, they don't want to have a, a glass ceiling because they don't want to be a leader, right? So I look back and I, and I think that really the best way we can change that is to have growth different growth opportunities, right? If you don't want to be a people leader, fine. But let's allow you to get up into that senior director, principal level echelon as an individual contributor that just kicks ass, right? If that's what you want to be the best at, if you want to be the best engineer in the world, then go be the best engineer in the world. There shouldn't be a requirement for you to become a people leader if you don't have the skills or desire to do so. It's a different skill set. And I think we fail to recognize in the IT space. Yeah, I, I, I see it growing in more mature companies where you're able to develop career paths like that. But for the smaller organizations, I could see why it becomes a challenge. As you think about that decision between leadership and technical, how did you make that decision? So for me, people are what drive me. I'm not technical. So I didn't, I kind of went the route that I did more by necessity than by by choice. I mean, for me, you know, we have a lot of folks on the team that it's the, it's the network problems. It's the engineering challenges, right? It's the cyber specific, you know, use cases and doing the AI ML and the user behavior modeling, that that's the kind of stuff that drives them. And whereas for me, what drives me is how do we have a cohesive team that the whole company recognizes as a partner that is, you know, more collaborative and than, than past I guess, iterations. If you think 10 years ago, most cybersecurity shops were the office of no, right? They were like, no, we're going to have a power trip because we can stop you, so we will. And that's just not effective because developers can just work around you. I mean, they're, they're smarter than we give them credit for, right? So I think for me, my passion is, especially paired with, paired with my background, my passion is the people problem. And so for me, it, it, it was a natural work. And so the fact that I wasn't super technical, that I'm very happy having people that are way smarter than me because I see it more as a, as a partnership, less as a tiering thing, right? They're just different jobs in the same team. And so if you were to look at it from a sports analogy, I like being the coach. I don't want to go in the field and be the quarterback or the wide receiver. I'm just not that good of a thrower and I can't catch. So I'm much better. I'm much better to help strategize and go win the championship. And so I think that's just, people have to be honest about where they're, I think a lot of folks get into leadership because they feel they have to. And that's a mistake because it's not where they want to be and it's not where their skills are. Wow. Uh, and 
I love the approach of each person has their role, but being able to be the coach and to grow a team where you understand that you'll have people that are smarter than you doing uh, certain things and you're smarter than them in other areas and blending all those skills together. So it has to be a low ego environment for us, especially in cyber, right? You have to have an environment where whether, whether you are the director or whether you are the brand new, you know, junior analyst, ideas should be validated or should be, should be judged on the merit of the idea, not on the merit of the person that, that brings it. And that's what makes teams powerful. Absolutely. So we've went through a lot today. As you think about all the advice that you gave and your own journey, if you had to summarize that into one piece of advice for someone listening, someone seeing this in the future, what would that be? When it comes to breaking into cybersecurity, networking and getting involved is, your, is, is the key. You know, when I have openings uh, as a leader, I'm thinking like the, I, there's names that come to mind every time. Those are names that I've met at conferences. I've met at local get togethers. I've seen active on LinkedIn or Twitter, right? Those names come to mind and they're generally the first people that I think of when I, when I have open roles. So, and you don't have to be super senior. You don't have to be super experienced. All you have to do is participate. And I would highly recommend uh, for folks wanting to get in, just be known. Let people know that. Craig, thank you so much for your time today. Truly appreciate it. For all of you following on LinkedIn, follow myself, follow Craig, follow the podcast. For those of you following us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button and that notification button. And for those of you listening to us on podcast after the fact, give us a 10 star rating or five if you can, <laughs> and then share with as many people as possible. Truly, we appreciate you joining us today and have a great rest of your day. Thanks.